Burning Books with Eric Beck-Rubin. Hello, and welcome to episode 25, the quarter anniversary of the Burning Books podcast, where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today, we're talking about what is often an amazing, amazing, sometimes the only superlative is repetition, novel. That novel is Hadrian's Memoirs. The author is Marguerite Yourcenar. The work was translated by Grace Frick in collaboration with the author, one of many collaborations, as Yourcenar and Frick were life partners, a term probably not in use at that time. And it was initially published in French in 1954. I'd say allez-y, but this work has almost nothing to do with Gaul, as the French province was known during Hadrian's time, so I'll opt with the Latin, semper ubi sub ubi. Are you, like me, an I Claudius junkie, or Yo Claudius, as it's known in Spanish? Are block paragraphs about Germanicus's military adventures in the Rhineland the kind of thing that gets you super jacked? Does the figure of Livia so haunt your dreams that, for a time, you wondered what it would be like to have your own food taster, even though you were 14 years old and living in 20th century Canada? While reading a novel and encountering a new character, do you reflexively flip to the back of the book and find, to your dismay, there's no two-page fold-out family tree containing more than 105 names? If so, great. And if not, that's okay too. While Hadrian's memoirs overlap now and then with the memoirs contained in I, Claudius, putting them together is merely a point of departure. I, Claudius was the story of one boy's unlikely ascension to the highest post in the Roman Empire, largely by virtue of being too innocuous to deserve assassination. Hadrian, on the other hand, was always marked as a likely candidate to take over. While I, Claudius is a story that could stand next to the histories of Suetonius and Livy, the latter being a tutor of Claudius, Hadrian's Memoirs is more a book in keeping with the Platonic dialogues and the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. In fact, while Aurelius is regarded as the original philosopher king, it is Hadrian who cleared the young man's path in at least two ways. He adopted Marcus Aurelius, making him emperor-in-waiting, and he ensured that the young Marcus inherited an empire that befitted his generally pacific inward virtues. Hadrian took over from a long line of expansionist emperors and turned the empire around. He is most famous for building the walls that marked the edge of the empire, and this seems about right. More than a physical barrier, these walls were a call to end the relentless expansion of the Roman Empire and to turn inward to self-cultivation. Maybe the best way I can summarize Hadrian's memoirs is to say that they are extended meditations on an emperor's philosophical and political rise and eventual corporeal demise, and are written in the form of a long letter to the adopted son, Marcus Aurelius, who at the beginning of the story has already been deemed by Hadrian as the successor. There would be one emperor in between, Antoninus Pius, but he is essentially a placeholder, although a strangely long-serving one. More than a history, though, and this is a crucial difference between this novel and I, Claudius, Hadrian's memoirs are a portrayal of how one person, a unique person, perceived the world around him at a particular time. To read these memoirs is to take up extended residence in another person's head. Hadrian's letter to Marcus Aurelius begins, My dear Mark, today I went to see my physician Hermogenes, who has just returned to the villa from a rather long journey in Asia. No food could be taken before the examination, so we had made the appointment for the early morning hours. 
I took off my cloak and tunic and lay down on a couch. I spare you details, which would be as disagreeable to you as to me. The description of the body of a man who is growing old and is about to die of a dropsical heart. Resignation and prophecy are Hadrian's way of expressing himself. They are his style. But what really stands out in the memoirs are Hadrian's intensely expressed insights. Here he is, for instance, talking about the concept of pleasure and the difficulty he finds in expressing this centrally important aspect of his life. That mysterious play which extends from love of a body to love of an entire person has seemed to me noble enough to consecrate to it one part of my life. Words for it are deceiving, since the word for pleasure covers contradictory realities comprising notions of warmth, sweetness, and intimacy of bodies, but also feelings of violence and agony, and the sound of a cry. The short and obscene sentence of Poseidonius about the rubbing together of two small pieces of flesh, which I have seen you copy in your exercise books with the application of a good schoolboy, does no more to define the phenomenon of love then the chord touched by the finger accounts for the infinite miracle of sounds. The shift between the abstract and concrete is a mark of Hadrian's thought, as rendered by Yersinar. And the text is thick with examples. One meditation on life leads to another, to another. For instance, in the example we just heard, a meditation on the inexpressibility of pleasure quickly turns into another meditation on the indescribability of sound. That could make for some dense mowing, but it actually doesn't turn out that way. Rather than building thoughts and words up, Yursinar stretches them out. Her prose has a way of slowing down time. Yes, you will read more slowly, but it's not owing to a lack of clarity or overfreighting of sentences and paragraphs. Yursinar penetrates to the heart of things in clean, direct slices. As a reader, you want to follow the lines she draws, and once you've come to an end, reflect on what you've just read. This is not density. It's a kind of live profundity. It may be that Hadrian expresses himself so clearly in prose because while he studies himself and the people around him closely, his greatest source of knowledge is from the written word. Hadrian understands life through books. For Hadrian, life leads to literature. After all, this is one of the main points of the memoirs. So it makes sense that he expresses himself so fluidly through the medium of words. It's his preferred mode of trafficking with the world. Having said that, I don't wish to give the impression that Hadrian buries his head in books. Had that been the case, it wouldn't have remained attached to his neck. After he begins by describing his various ailments and setting a mood of goodbye to all that in the first chapter of the novel, Hadrian moves back in time to the last days of his predecessor, Trajan, and the flurry of activity over the matter of succession. Emperors adopt their successors, and Trajan, perhaps rejecting his fast-approaching moment of reckoning, had willfully deferred the matters of adoption and succession, which made for a great deal of intrigue, which is really what sets the story of Hadrian's memoirs in motion. Hadrian is one of a few vying for Trajan's favor, and the competition is fierce. Traps are set, tests are laid out. It's a combination of Lear's Who Loves Me Most and a military-style obstacle course, jump over the hurdle, swim through the mud, and Hadrian, with guile and fortune, eventually succeeds. Upon receiving the throne, Hadrian does what every emperor does. Venerate his father Trajan and kill his enemies, distasteful as both these acts are to this new emperor who wants to have a different way of doing things. But they do indicate a key part of Hadrian's nature. While he is a dreamer, his feet are firmly planted in this world, and he sees this combination as the best that his heritage has bequeathed to him. I looked for example even to those twelve Caesars so mistreated by Suetonius. 
the clear-sightedness of Tiberius, without his harshness, the learning of Claudius, without his weakness, Nero's taste for the arts, but stripped of all foolish vanity, the kindness of Titus, stopping short of his sentimentality, Vespasian's thrift, but not his absurd miserliness. It devolved upon me to choose hereafter from among their acts what should be continued, consolidating the best things, correcting the worst, until the day when other men, either more or less qualified than I, but charged with equal responsibility, would undertake to review my acts likewise. But however much he continues a tradition, it's clear that Hadrian is equally intent on breaking it. The most prominent example is that, while he rules from Rome, Hadrian does so with Greek mores and aims. We already know that Hadrian's favorite city is Athens. He added to it with the construction of the Olympian at the base of the Acropolis. And Hadrian thinks of himself as possessing a Greek spirit or soul. On occasion, he follows the practical advice of Aristotle, as when he says, We emperors are not Caesars. We are functionaries of the state. That plaintiff, whom I refused one day to hear out, was right when she exclaimed that if I had no time to listen to her, I had no time to rule. The excuses which I offered her were not merely a matter of form, and nevertheless, time is lacking. The more the empire enlarges, the more the different aspects of authority tend to be concentrated in the hands of the chief of state. While other times, he seeks the perfections promised by Plato, most obviously in charting out his architectural projects, including his justly famous villa outside Rome. The villa was the tomb of my travels, the last encampment of the nomad, the equivalent, though in marble, of the tents and pavilions of the princes of Asia. Almost everything that appeals to our taste has already been tried in the world of forms, so I turned toward the realm of color, jasper as green as the depths of the sea, porphyry dense as flesh, basalt and somber obsidian. The crimson of the hangings was adorned with more and more intricate embroideries, the mosaics of the walls or pavements were never too golden, too white, or too dark. Each building stone was the strange concretion of a will, a memory, and sometimes a challenge. Each structure was the chart of a dream. What distinguishes Yersinar's version of Hadrian from the Greek and even Roman models, and what makes him a unique combination of those Greek and Roman models, is Hadrian's desire to create an ideal that accounts for the complexities of reality. What I mean is, Hadrian is not an escapist or a fantasist, nor is he a lunatic who believes in the perfectibility of life on earth. Hadrian wants to make things as perfect in the world as possible without obliterating the imperfections that are part of the world. This is what makes him more of a philosopher king than a philosopher. It's often said of historical fiction that an author succeeds when he or she brings a character to life, when he or she makes that character into a flesh and blood individual, someone contemporary with us, someone incomplete, whose limits are not yet defined. While you could say that Hadrian gestures to that sense of fallibility and mutability, for instance, when he speaks of his regrets over actions taken and not taken, at no time does this Roman emperor seem like a flesh and blood person or a contemporary. This is not meant as a criticism. Rather than bringing Hadrian to our world, Yersinar transports us to Hadrian's world, to the 2nd century AD. Hadrian may not be, as he so often protests, a god, but neither is he entirely human. And it would be an error had Yersinar chosen to make him so. Her skill is to keep this inaccessible person fascinating. And it's critical that Hadrian remains fascinating, because at a certain point in the novel, the story, such as it is, becomes choppy. 
Let me be clear, plot is not the central concern of Hadrian's memoirs, and when it's working well, it doesn't need to be. Hadrian's observations, and more specifically the phrasing of Hadrian's observations, are where the gold is. But once Hadrian's ascent is complete, his walls built, and his place assured, the momentum of the novel begins to break. Mostly, it breaks over the appearance of one particular character. A little apart from the others, a young boy was listening, half attentive, half in a dream. I thought at once of some shepherd, deep in the woods, vaguely aware of a strange bird's cry. He had brought neither tablet nor style. Seated on the edge of the water's basin, he trailed a hand idly over the fair, placid surface. His father, I learned, had held a small post in administration of the vast imperial domains. Yes, this would be Antinous, Antinous the Greek. I trace the story of his ancient but little-known family back to the time of the first Arcadian settlers along the shores of the Propontis. But Asia had produced its effect upon that rude blood, like the drop of honey which clouds and perfumes a pure wine. His presence was extraordinarily silent. He followed me like some animal, or a familiar spirit. He had the infinite capacity of a young dog for play and for swift repose, and the same fierceness and trust. This grateful hound, avid both for caresses and commands, took his post at my feet. And other body parts. Hadrian was married, but rarely saw his wife, and from a young age he enjoyed the company of men, or I should say, boys. Antinous, however, sails above the field. I see a head bending under its dark mass of hair, eyes which seem slanting, a young face broadly formed, as if for repose. This tender body varied all the time, like a plant, and some of its alterations were those of growth. The boy changed, he grew tall. A week of indolence sufficed to soften him completely. A single afternoon at the hunt made the young athlete firm again and fleet. An hour's sun turned him from jasmine to the color of honey. The boyish limbs lengthened out. The face lost its delicate childish round and hollowed slightly under the high cheekbones. The brooding lips bespoke a bitter, sad satiety. There's a lot of this, and relative to the words Hadrian lavishes on the wider world, it gets old and fast, unlike Antinous, who remains forever young, and not in a good way, if there is a good way. Once this tender boy's spirit is taken to the underworld, Hadrian is left with a big, Antinous-shaped hole in his life. Yes, I just said that. And he doesn't skimp when it comes to mourning it, or memorializing it, for example, in the founding of Antinopolis, a city designed by Hadrian in Upper Egypt. The other thing that fills the Antinous void is a long list of public acts undertaken by the emperor. In comparison to the earlier, zesty Hadrian, the acts of the later years lack vitality, and the absence is felt by the reader. There is a last gasp, heroic comeback by the emperor, with the campaign in Judea. Once again, Hadrian reigns in all his skill, perspicacity, persuasion, and forcefulness to defeat a stubborn enemy, banishing the Jews from Judea, and, as a punishment, renaming the territory Palestine. That fight, however, was Hadrian's last. He almost died during the campaign. His health is failing. After coming back to the villa, the memoirs turn to the twilight of the idle phase, as Hadrian returns to his familiar, mortality-tinged, dulcet tone philosophizing. And this ending is like a beautiful sunset. It shows the emperor's and author's best face, reminding the reader, if necessary, what an amazing feat this book is, a sustained insight into the nature of one remarkable person. Thank you for listening. Next up on Burning Books will be a review of Michael Arlen's Buttery Memoirs. 
I'm commenting on tone, not content. That book is called Exiles, and it was damn fine reading. Burning Books is part of the Latopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes, subscribe, and reach me there via the email the show button, all by going to latopia.com, spelled the way it sounds, and following the link to Burning Books. I also enjoy getting your tweets, nasty and nice. I'm at Burning Books Pod. My thanks to Hakan Ozgan for the music, Semper Ubi Sabubi, to Peter Cox, executive producer of the program. The next one is the letter H. Yeah, you say that's so weird. That's what H. It's not, it's not. <laughs> and as always, go Jays. Greetings, I'm Ian Wynn, host of Latopia After Dark. As a Californian living in London, I have a special relationship with myself, and it's one I'd like to share with you. Okay, that came out wrong, but what I'm trying to say is here on Latopia After Dark, we bridge the gap between nations, generations, people, and ideas. We reach out and... No, we don't touch people, but our guests are experts in their fields, all of them can read, and none of them take themselves too seriously, or at least not for very long. Welcome to Latopia After Dark, a digital campfire for the internet age. So sit down, grab some wood, and get warm. I'm going to have to do this again, aren't I?